So last week, Mark gave us an overview of the four aspects of wise effort. You might remember the effort to prevent unskillful mind states from coming up. But then if our effort wasn't enough, then we need to make the effort to stop any skillful states, unskillful states that have come up to release. And then the third one is to help skillful states to come up. And then when they have, to help those skillful states deepen, strengthen, you could say become more of our default setting. So that's in a nutshell, again, what those four are. And so tonight I'd like to continue exploring these different aspects of wise effort, beginning just by acknowledging that because of our mind's inbuilt negativity bias, we tend to put a lot more emphasis on what you could call the negative side of the scale. So what's unpleasant, painful, misery-inducing. And then on top of that basic biological conditioning, we also add a whole pile of mainstream societal conditioning. So cultural values like individualism and competitiveness and perfectionism and idealism. And those tend to combine to create fixed self-views that we then almost fixate on our so-called mistakes or our failures or our shortcomings, all the ways we're not getting it right, not doing it good enough, should be better. Does that resonate a little bit for anyone? Anybody not recognize that at all? Yeah, sadly not. (laughs) Because early on in my own meditation practice, I started to become aware of all of these negative states, self-judgment, inadequacy, and so on. And until I started meditating, I just thought they were normal, natural, almost like the water that I was swimming in. It was just how the mind was. And I didn't even really recognize how toxic those states were. But eventually, when I did, through meditation, start to realize the effects of that kind of default setting, and I started to get a bit more motivated to try and change them, Even so, I still believe that those states were unique to me and that everybody else was balanced and stable and normal and happy and I was the only one in the room who was defective, deficient and so on. And it really wasn't until I started being in this role and hearing other people talk about their minds that I started to realize just how universal many of these negative self-views are. And it's actually quite tragic. You know, I don't know what we're doing in our society that so many of us seem to get infected from a very early age with these toxic negative self-beliefs. And one of the challenges is that we can then bring that same underlying perfectionism, idealism, and so on, that same conditioning into our Dharma practice and turn the whole thing into a giant self-improvement project. It's actually rooted in the same inadequacy and comparing mind and insufficiency 
perfectionism that we bring to everything else. So as we were exploring a few weeks ago, when we hear the term right effort, our minds can get really caught in should be doing more, should be doing better, should be trying harder. And inadvertently with that attitude, we end up increasing the negative mind states instead of decreasing them. So coming back to this framework of the four efforts, because they're laid out in a sequence, starting with the removal of the painful states, and then apparently progressing all the way to being able to abide in the pleasant states, in beautiful qualities of heart and mind, because of that sequence, there might be a tendency to think, well, first, I have to spend years battling with the hindrances and the so-called defilements and all of those challenging, painful things until maybe eventually, some way off in the future, I might have a glimmer of some kind of happiness. The kind of happiness that I've read about in Dharma books or heard people on retreat talking about. But this is a misunderstanding. We don't have to wait for those beautiful states to arise at some distant point in the future, we can actively cultivate and develop them now. So we can have a foretaste now of what the awakened heart and mind experiences more consistently. And in fact, this is what the Buddha was pointing to when he used the term Brahma-vihara, which I think you're all familiar with. The Brahma-vihara being those four skillful qualities of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So the word vihara means a dwelling place, somewhere where we live or abide. And Brahma was a kind of god at the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha took this term that was in common use in the Brahman religion, and he kind of subverted it to mean that we can actually live in a heavenly state now, here and now, not in some up there heaven or some distant future heaven, but right here, right now, when we cultivate these heart qualities. So of these four Brahmahara, there's one I'd like to focus on tonight, and it's mudita, appreciative joy. Because mudita is such a powerful, both a protection from unskillful states and an antidote to skillful state, unskillful states that have arisen. So mudita, usually translated as sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. And in that framework of the four Brahmaviharas, it's what arises naturally when basic kindness or goodwill turns towards what's going well, towards our successes and our happiness in life. And as I think you know, traditionally, mudita was appreciation, the capacity to feel happiness for somebody else's happiness, not for one's own happiness. But as most of you have heard me talk about, this is a later development in the Buddhist tradition. And earlier on, at the time of the Buddha, Mudita simply meant gladness. It didn't have to be for somebody else's happiness. And we can see the power of gladness in the way the English monk Ajahn Suchito describes this development. 
It's, he's talking about the four great efforts and where they're heading. He says, the energy of doing things, the energy of arousing and gladdening oneself on the one hand, and disciplining, restraining, and investigating on the other, is aimed towards an end result. Effort is a very useful function of energy, but effort can never be a goal. The goal is not to keep making more and more effort. The goal is to arrive at emotional stability and fullness of heart. And with that comes a plenitude that doesn't change. And the Buddha called it Nibbana, the unconditioned or the deathless. So you might have noticed he talked about gladdening oneself as a key part of this aspect of wise effort that leads to freedom. And so in my own teaching, I like to emphasize the appreciative aspect of mudita, to link it in with gratitude so that it becomes a very powerful antidote to things like the pain of comparing mind and the underlying feeling of inadequacy that is so common. So mudita is an invitation to appreciate our own good qualities, our own good fortune, equally with the good fortune of others too. And in my own practice, I found it helpful to start with myself because when I'm more connected to what's going well for me, what I can appreciate about my own life, what I can appreciate about my own good qualities, it's harder to get caught in lack mind and that feeling of not good enough. And so as you know, I think traditionally as a practice, all four of these Brahma-viharas are done by silently reciting phrases that evoke the quality that we're developing. So for example, the phrases that I use for mudita are, I appreciate my own good qualities. I take joy in this good fortune. May this joy continue. May it grow. May it lead to ever-deepening ease and freedom. So when we've got some capacity to evoke that mudita for ourselves, then we can start to bring in the same quality and extend it to others, starting with good friends and then neutral people, then more challenging people, and then all beings. So for some of you that might sound straightforward. For many people... There are a few common challenges in relation to all of that. And the first is, just the word joy can be a trigger for some people. Anybody notice that? True for me, when I hear this invitation to take joy in something, part of me goes, well, that's not just who I am. That's just not who I am. I'm just not a joyful person. Part of my upbringing, my cultural heritage. I don't think I even heard the word joy until I started doing these teachings. So you don't have to use the word joy. You can choose something that resonates more for you. Could be just gratitude. Could be lightness. Could, it could be quiet contentment. So you can customize it to suit your own temperament. The other second challenge is with this form of mudita practice, 
because of the mind's inherent negativity bias that I just mentioned and all of that conditioning around competitiveness, sometimes people have a hard time even finding things that they can appreciate about their lives. It doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. And I wonder if this is partly because, in some ways, being appreciative makes us vulnerable. Some people don't want to acknowledge what they've received because it makes them feel indebted or beholden or threatens the illusion of their independence. And so it's easy just to disconnect and not even take it in. And I've been exploring this theme of generosity and gratitude in a different sangha recently. And most people there acknowledge that they were far more comfortable being the one who offered generosity than the one who received it. So that seems to be true for a lot of people. And then what surprised me, though, was how many people said, well, they just haven't ever received any generosity, hadn't ever received much that they could think of. And again, maybe they were looking for big acts of generosity, waiting for someone to hand them a million dollars or something. (laughs) But if we're waiting for that, we miss, somebody made me a cup of tea. Somebody brought biscuits. Somebody provided cushions. Somebody turned on the heater. You know, there's myriad things when we attune to what's actually going on with that lens of appreciation. And all of us here tonight, no accident. Lots of acts of intentional kindness and care brought about all of us here tonight. As I've said before, stemming all the way back to the Buddha and the flow of those teachings. So the third potential challenge is that the invitation to acknowledge our own strengths also can challenge some very deep conditioning. We're supposed to be humble, Mm -hmm. invisible, anonymous, not blow our own trumpets or toot our own horns, as they say in the U.S., And some people believe, well, Buddhists, it's not Buddhist to be thinking about yourself. And they sometimes even wonder if this mudita practice I'm sharing is something that I made up as some kind of psychological self-affirmation thing, and it's not really Buddhist at all. And that it might lead to the delusion of feeling special or inflated. But in fact, this capacity to acknowledge our own good qualities was recommended by the Buddha to a layman, a householder. And this man went to the Buddha and said, can you offer some teachings for householders, not just monastics? And he wanted a practice that he could do at home in the middle of his ordinary life. And the Buddha told him that through the whole day he should keep in mind his own generosity and his own good qualities, his own virtues. And that if he did that, his mind would settle and steady, his meditation practice would deepen, and he would make powerful progress on the path to freedom, just from contemplating his own generosity and good qualities. As I've shared with some of you before, when I first heard this teaching, I was horrified, even at the idea of thinking about your own strengths. And so... Maybe I'm a masochist, I decided to give it a try. 
And I was surprised at the benefits that came from it. I started to feel less separate from other people, more connected, kinder, more generous. And that reflex of comparing mind and feeling less than got a lot quieter. And I started to be able to appreciate other people's good qualities because I was more in touch with my own. And the other counterintuitive benefit that came up was that I started to realize that instead of making me feel more special about my good qualities, they weren't really mine at all. You know, some of them were developed because of my parents or other family members. Some of them came from my teachers in school and then Dharma teachers and Dharma friends and the teachings. So all of these different conditions have flowed into me and I can't really take ownership of them and claim them as being mine. So the whole process started to feel less personal and the sense of self became lighter and there was more understanding of interconnectedness and the truth of anatta or not-self. So, although at first it might take some effort, some wise effort, to take in what's going well for us and to acknowledge our own strengths, over time it builds confidence that our skills are growing and then that deepens our trust, our faith, our confidence in the path. In fact, not doing this, in some ways, is a kind of a disrespect when we undermine our own efforts and our own growth. It's a disrespect of the gift that these teachings are giving us to not acknowledge it. So remembering the quote I shared from Ajahn Suchito a few minutes ago, this wise effort to gladden ourselves leads to emotional stability and fullness of heart. And then we can continue to deepen that fullness of heart until it opens into the experience of Nibbana, the heart-mind that is completely free of greed and hatred and delusion. And that's where all of these efforts are leading us, starting with the effort to gladden ourselves. So I'd like to leave time to explore that together. So... Thank you for your attention. And let's uh, take some time just to see how that might be alive in your own life, your own practice. <laughs> 